Hey everybody, thank you for tuning into Cosmic Conversations. As a child, I looked up into the night sky, past the opaque white clouds, past the yellow stars that illuminated the obsidian night, and marveled at the seemingly infinite void of space that wraps around our planet like a weighted blanket. I've always had a deep and utter fascination with the unknown, and aside from death, space is the great unknown. So for today's episode, I'd like to discuss how far we've come, but how far we still have to go in our understanding of the universe and everything in it. Carl Sagan once said, We are a way for the universe to know itself. I think about this often, about the fact that, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we are star stuff. That the atoms and molecules that make up our bodies were forged in the furnaces of distant stars billions of years ago. We are literally the universe come alive. I find a sense of wholeness in this knowledge. And knowing that our heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying flesh is a small part of the greater oneness that is the cosmos. I like to surround myself with intelligent people. With people who are able to expand my mind in directions I didn't know it could stretch. And my guest today is one such person. He's somebody I graduated high school with, but who has since gone on to earn degrees in astrophysics from Caltech and UCLA, and will soon earn a PhD from the latter. However, before I start, I'd like to address something. I'm a human being, which means sometimes I screw up. During our conversation, I made the mistake of not turning down the volume on my phone, and it rang pretty loudly. Usually when these kinds of things happen, I'm able to cut them out, and y'all are none the wiser. However, to fix this audio screw up, I would have had to cut an entire line of questioning, so I elected to keep it in, mistake and all. Generally speaking, I'm pretty hard on editing things I'm not proud of, but in this case, I had no choice if I was to maintain the integrity of the talk. So please forgive me for my screw-up, and I sincerely hope this lack in quality does not deter any of you from listening to future episodes. With that said, I hope you enjoy my conversation on life, the universe, and everything in it with the brilliant and insightful Mason McDougall. Hey Mason, thank you for being on Cosmic Conversations. I, uh, I really appreciate your time and your, uh, your knowledge on uh, the, the given subject, which is uh, the universe. So... I was wondering if you would be able to describe the size of the universe in a way that somebody like me can understand. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the universe is about 14 billion years old. Um, if you've ever watched the Big Bang Theory TV show, that's yeah. like right in the title song. Um, so, 14 billion years old. Um, so you would expect that the universe is at least 14 billion light years across because the universe is constantly expanding. That's like one of the key principles of the universe is that it's always expanding. Um, but the universe actually expands faster than the speed of light. Um, that's like a strange concept, I know. But basically, <laughs> the universe, if we assume the Big Bang Theory is accurate, it started off as a very small point in space and that point exploded, and then everything started expanding outwards forever since then. Um, and that occurred 14 billion years ago. And since then, it's been expanding faster and faster and faster as time has gone on. So the, the expansion is accelerating. So empty space is actually the thing that is expanding here. Um, so let's say you have two galaxies, like the Milky Way and our closest galaxy, the Andromeda Galaxy. So these two galaxies are actually um, moving apart from each other because the space between them is getting bigger. So like empty space is expanding, which is like such a wild concept. Yeah, yeah definitely. But th 
this expansion of empty space, which is driven by dark energy and which we don't understand whatsoever, okay. has caused the universe to grow to an incredible size of, uh, I think it's almost 100 billion light years across. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you tried to go from one side to the other in, like, in human times, then it would take you about 100 billion years at the speed of light to get from one end of the universe to the other. Right. Um, and that that's huge, but it's really hard for us to comprehend some like a size like that. So what what is a hundred billion light years? So to put it in a little bit of perspective, the Milky Way, so our own galaxy, um, something that's a little more tangible, is about a hundred thousand light years across. So that's one million times smaller than the size of the whole universe. Wow. But that's in diameter. So, like, if that's just if you assume the universe was flat, and if you assume the Milky Way is flat, then the whole galaxy or the whole universe would be about a million times wider than the Milky Way galaxy. Oof. But the key the key thing here is actually volume. So, like, lengths are cool and all, but we live in a three dimensional space. Right. So, yeah. So if you're considering that the universe is roughly spherical since it's expanding in all directions. And the Milky Way is roughly a, a disk that's 100,000 light years across. And if you compare the volumes of those two things, then the volume of the universe is, I, I think I, I like did some of the numbers here real quick before this call. So the volume of the universe would be about 10 to the 33 cubic light years. Oof. So that's, that's a one followed by 33 zeros. <laughs> It's a lot of zeros. <laughs> yeah, and so that's 10 to the 33, but the volume of the Milky Way is only 10 to the 13 cubic light years. Right. So there's 10 to the 20 times difference in volume. <laughs> so that's 100 quintillion times that the universe is about 100 quintillion times bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. Right, right. So that's pretty much... That's, you, could fit, yeah. <laughs> you could fit a hundred quintillion Milky Ways in the universe. Right, right, right. But by the, by the time you filled the whole universe, it would have expanded even bigger. So then you'd have to fill it with more. Oh. Unfathomably large numbers. We just, <laughs> just can't, our, 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 our human minds are, are, uh, are struggling to comprehend the, the size of that. Um, exactly. So that leads me into my next question then. Which is, what are the odds that life exists outside of Earth? Because I'm assuming there's a connection between the massive size of the universe and the fact that we just haven't seen any life out there yet. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. So, the odds of life existing outside of Earth, I would personally say, are uh, pretty high. Um but the odds of there being intelligent life is a whole other question. So I'll just go with the basic question of, is there life in general? Like, whether it be bacteria or some other sort of creature, um, the odds of life out there are super high. And the reason for that, like you said, is just the universe is huge. Um, so in the universe, we've estimated based off of our observation abilities that there's about 100 billion galaxies in the whole universe and those are galaxies that we can like observe really clearly there might be more galaxies that are a lot smaller or even further away than we can see at this point in time but we're, we're calling it about 100 billion galaxies 
And on average, each of those galaxies has about 100 billion stars in it. And each of those stars has at least one planet around it. Mm -hmm. So that puts us at about 10 to the 22 planets in the universe, or about like 10 sextillion planets. And that's a lot. Um, Even if you're saying (laughs) that, you know, the odds of like life ever arising are like one in a billion or one in a trillion or something like that. Mm -hmm. That still leaves a lot of planets that there could be life on. And that that's only accounting for planets that exist today, like right now. Right. So we're not right. even accounting for what could have happened in the past. So like there could have been entire planetary systems or entire civilizations that, that rose and fell five billion years ago before the Earth <laughs> even existed. Yeah. And we would have no way of telling that yeah. they yeah, existed. Yeah. And then also, if you look into the future, who knows how long the universe is going to be around for in the future. So mm-hmm. even more like life could exist in the future elsewhere. So I would say that like saying that there is no other life beyond Earth is sort of just ignorant at this point, since we know um, like these numbers, these like unfathomable numbers of how many planets there are. Right, and another right. thing to consider is also how many moons there are. In our own solar system, we have like hundreds of moons around uh, planets and a handful of those are also candidates for hosting life mm-hmm. so if you're counting all the moons around all of these planets around all these stars right, then that, right that's even bigger numbers yeah 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 the the odds are more tipped in the favor of there being some kind of life just like because you said just because of the, the sheer size of, uh, of 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 planetary uh, of planets and and moons that could possibly sustain life that we'll just never ever ever in <laughs> in human knowledge be aware of. Um, yeah, oof, exactly. That's incredible. And right now, we we only know so there's <clears throat> eight planets in our solar system and then a handful of other um, dwarf planets and stuff. But we also know of about um, up like upwards of about five thousand planets beyond our uh, solar system um, and I, that's sort of what I work on is trying to discover new planets mm-hmm. and even then we found 5,000 out of 10 sextillion in the yeah. universe so <laughs> we're we're not really on our way there in terms of finding other life out there right, um, right. so we're we're working towards it but right, right. but uh, still, chances are we're not going to find it in our lifetime still a long way away I mean if I remember correctly we didn't even know that there were other planets until the 20th century Right, we had theories, but we were never able to find any other planets other than uh, our own up until some some time in the 1900s. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that, that's such a great point. Um, so I think the the first confirmation of a planet beyond Earth, I believe, happened sometime, or I don't think it was even a confirmation. I think it was like a detected signal of a planet beyond Earth happened sometime in maybe like the 1960s or 70s. Um, and some of the first publications of these things were in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like the first time we ever found a planet around another star. Right, right. And since then, the numbers have been growing yearly. Um, up until about 2009, we only knew of about 400 planets mm-hmm. outside of the solar system. And then between 2009 and 2015, we learned of another 3,000, 3,000 right. or 4,000. Right, and in the last maybe five years, we've learned about another thousand or so. So then that that leads into my next question about like what so what are the implications of 
finding out or discovering that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. And what I mean by that is, do you think that implies a certain kind of responsibility to preserve ourselves? I think that's a really interesting question, actually. So it's hard to say if we are the only intelligent life in the universe, mm -hmm. because like I said, there, there's, some, there's such high odds of there being other life out there, mm -hmm. but we don't actually know what the odds are of life going from, like, microbial to right. intelligent as a human right um like we only know the steps that it took to get there based off of what happened on earth but mm -hmm. who knows if the conditions to achieve intelligent life are the same as conditions to just create life in general mm -hmm. um so yeah let, let's say that we are the only intelligent life in the universe um somehow and i, I think that we really would owe it to just the universe and just to philosophy and thought and science to try to preserve ourselves as best as we can because if we're the only intelligent life that ever existed and would ever exist then i feel like it would kind of be in a way like our responsibility to try to learn as much as we can about the universe before right, right. like our species ceases to exist right so right now we're not really doing too hot on that respect. <laughs> um, yeah yeah <laughs> considering we're uh, constantly destroying ourselves and our planet but right. uh yeah if if we were the only intelligent life i would say that it's our responsibility to figure out how to unify and get off the planet and mm -hmm. you know try to colonize the solar system and the, and the galaxy right i mean the odds of that are so incredibly low but uh if <laughs> if we could somehow unite over these like greater causes of exploring the universe more right and right. I, I think humanity could somehow manage to do that probably um but i think is, that is it gonna is it gonna be soon probably not <laughs> I, I i know that coming into the the 21st century we're 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 going through what um what they're calling like a bottleneck we just have so many things working against us but I, I'm I'm a huge fan of science fiction. I love science fiction. You know, that's that's where my interest in the universe kind of stems from. And in in science fiction, you know, they they it, it is fiction, but it, it's it, the the overall genre is kind of about you know a human human enterprise, human human discovery. And most science fiction models predict that we have to we have to go through this <laughs> in going through this we will come together hopefully theoretically and, and and be able to achieve uh some some level of like a planetary society or, or a um a, a society that you know that leaves the leaves the solar system um so you think there are probably l very low odds of that i mean I, I i guess it's kind of obvious where we are right now it seems so we we seem like we're in such a, a destitute place, but I, I like I like to keep hope. So I was curious as to whether or not you had any hope of that. Um, from my uh, personal pessimistic perspective, <laughs> I would say uh, no. Right. But based off of just science and like scientific theories and stuff, I'd say you know they, we still stand a chance. Um, right. I mean, humans are pretty resilient creatures, and right. even if like we've destroyed the planet around us um it's it's pretty hard to kill us off to be yeah. quite honest um <laughs> yeah. like at this point with intelligent life this far along and how technology is this far along mm -hmm. even if a huge asteroid hit us or if we went into nuclear war or something that we almost right. destroyed ourselves we we would still right live on through it yeah um yeah 
like like the only things that would really be able to destroy intelligent life on the earth would be like a huge ass asteroid <laughs> or like gigantic solar flare or something yeah. like that yeah, but, yeah. Uh, something something yeah. something that space dealt upon us as opposed to us killing ourselves yeah uh, like yeah. like us killing ourselves is quite quite difficult just yeah. given how advanced like our technology is both the thing that would destroy us and also the thing that would prevent us from being destroyed mm-hmm. simultaneously mm-hmm. right right, right. <laughs> but uh the the comment you made about like there being kind of like a bottleneck is actually um it's actually like an interesting scientific theory or i guess like kind of like where science fiction is meeting like real science right that people think that there's like this thing called uh the great filter um or like the great bottleneck or something like that which is basically just that at each step in advancement of like a species or civilization there's like basically a huge hurdle that has to be overcome to move on to the next step so i mean going from going from a bunch of proteins in the ocean to being a single cell organism to being multicellular to being like a animal and then intelligent all of these had like right. huge barriers to entry right right that prevented that prevented some species from jumping the gap and, and allowed others to do it mm-hmm. so we've overcome all of these barriers and we're the only intelligent species on earth but like you said there's kind of like a, a bottleneck right now where we've advanced so far in the route that we're taking but if we want to advance to becoming a species that can basically enjoy all of the resources of the whole planet or the whole solar system, mm-hmm. we'd have to kind of overcome the new barrier, which is all of the like borders and boundaries and like issues that we've placed on ourselves as like a human society, right. as opposed to like a human race right. um, or human species. Mm-hmm. And all of these like boundaries that we've placed up have prevented us from like uniting behind that like greater cause. Right. Um, so it's just an interesting like combination of like science fiction, science and like social sciences right, has like right. come up with this uh, cool, cool theory. And um, there's actually a thing called the um, Kardashev scale. Uh-huh. Uh, basically, it, it's a way of like ranking civilizations based off of their ability to unify and um, divide resources appropriately, and mm-hmm. like take take over resources as a species. Mm-hmm. And the way the scale works is, if you're a type zero civilization, it means that you haven't yet figured out how to unify over all the resources available to you so we're right. still like type zero or if mm-hmm. um some some ranking systems for this scale place us at like type 0.6 or something like that right right we're more we're more towards unifying over um uh, using our resources appropriately than like being completely divided mm-hmm. but we're not quite there yet right if you achieve a type one civilization then it's considered like a planetary civilization so uh-huh. basically you've unified to use all of the resources of your whole planet available to you. So as a species, you have advanced far enough to collectively utilize this, like all of the solar solar energy hitting Earth. You've mined everything you can. You're using hydroelectric power and all of that stuff. Um, so that's type one. Mm-hmm. So even that seems utopian to us. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, I, I can't fathom a civilization where we have yeah. that much capability. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that's only like the beginning of the scale. So, mm-hmm. so a type two civilization would be, uh, it's, it's considered like a stellar civilization or a solar system civilization. Mm-hmm. Basically, we've learned to colonize our entire solar system and figured out how to utilize pretty much all of the energy available to us in the whole solar system right. and of 
fun. Mm-hmm. So that's basically, um, if we were able to create technology considered, that's called, um, it's something called a Dyson sphere. Right. Yeah. I, I, I remember very, a Dyson sphere from actually from, from science fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's very science fiction. I think that's like kind of where the idea first or like came about was from science fiction. Yeah. So basically yeah. like you put some sort of huge contraption around this, the sun and it absorbs all the solar energy. Yeah. And if you did that, you could power a like solar system wide civilization forever right, if right, you managed right. to figure that out. Um, I remember a couple yeah. of, a couple of years ago there was um, and obviously I'm not a scientist so maybe I misunderstood but a couple of years ago there was a um, a star whose light was being blocked and there were theories that perhaps that sun's that sun's energy was being captured by some sort of Dyson sphere. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I I remember that in in the news. Or in the oh, yeah. reading about it. Yeah, like that, that's a that's a good point. I remember that too. That that was actually a pretty big story because that was a true mystery. We had no clue how how that happened. Right. So yeah, it was. So it was a relatively bright star that we we knew about and like was well studied, mm-hmm. and it just suddenly got dimmer. Yeah. So like some stars will go through different phases of evolution where they'll like the star will get bigger, or smaller, and like the mm-hmm. brightness will change. Mm-hmm. But this one was like. Over the course of days, it yeah. just suddenly popped in brightness by right. a huge amount. And, like, we couldn't explain this through, like, any means of understanding, like, what the star was doing or if our telescopes were screwing up or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, yeah, one of the theories was that if some civilization around that star, like, was building a Dyson sphere, it makes mm-hmm. sense that they would be able to block out a substantial portion of light right. in a short right. amount of time. Right, um, right. And that honestly was one of the viable theories at the beginning of um, this happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, there was a known planet around this star, so we did know that this planet or this star did have planets around it. So mm-hmm. the the leading theory now is that a planet got too close to the star mm-hmm. and started evaporating. So oh. the planet basically just turned into like a ball of dust. Gotcha. And that ball of dust just like yeah, just shielded the, light. the whole star. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So you you were you were saying that um, uh, you were saying the second level. I think the uh, second level of a uh, uh, civilization, right? Is is a uh, is a is that a, is a galactic civilization? Is that where you were on? I, I want to jump back into uh, that because that was interesting. Yeah. So so like a, a solar system civilization. So that okay. that was type two. Like if you can create a Dyson sphere and you can like take all the energy of your solar system. So mm-hmm. for us, it would be like we could harness the energy of the sun. And then we terraform Mars and mm-hmm. we, you know, go and collect water from Enceladus, like one of the moons mm-hmm. of um, one of the other planets and right. stuff like that. We start asteroid mining. So that would be a, a type two civilization. Mm-hmm. Type three is the craziest one. So type three <laughs> is if we somehow manage to colonize the galaxy. Okay. So, so that would involve, so like colonizing the solar system seems like possible because we can get to Mars in a matter of like months yeah. and like we can get to the sun, we can build huge, like huge, like structures in space. Yeah. So like that, that's possible. I, I would say that if humans somehow got past all these like barriers we put up, it's possible that we could reach planetary civilization right. and maybe solar system. Uh-huh. But galaxy is like way out there Um, (laughs) yeah so that would mean that we would have to somehow get humans on a reasonable time scale to travel to other stars around us Mm -hmm. um 
and that's pretty damn hard considering yeah. stars are far away so like right. the closest star is four light years away so even if you're going at the speed of light it would take you four years to get there four years but or four four so okay, if you're going at the speed of light it would take you about four years to get to the closest star and that's i mean we can't travel at the speed of flight yeah we our fastest object that we've ever created like as a species goes about 0.02 percent the speed of light right <laughs> so it would take <laughs> us forever to get to even the closest star with our current technology right right but uh but yeah so a type 3 civilization would somehow figure out how to move their species to other stars and then take over those uh, like um, planetary systems mm-hmm. and then expand outward to other solar systems and just keep expanding and then somehow take over like the energy usage of the entire galaxy right and right. that one is just like to us completely like Un- science fiction. yeah unfathomable at this point exactly like like that's that's like star wars level that's like hitchhiking <laughs> guys of the galaxy level of thinking yeah. right you would need right. light speed travel or like like teleportation or something to that effect something that we can't even fathom in our like wildest dreams of technology at this point do you think we'll ever um, achieve speed of light travel that so that's like an interesting one because it's so hard to say where technology is going at any given time right i i don't i don't think we would ever get to speed of light travel Mm -hmm. but a higher fraction of the speed of light Uh i think probably can be done right so I mean, so, like, in the last, probably in the last 20 years or so, we've gone from, like, 0.0001% the speed of light to, like, 0.02% the speed of light. So that, right. we've, we've, like, gone up quite a bit um, just in the last several decades in terms mm-hmm. of how fast we've figured out how to make things go. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're, we're still nowhere near going fast enough to, like, travel away from the sun. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. The, some of the cool technologies that people have come up with are things called like solar sails. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've, yeah. Basically, <laughs> I've seen those in science fiction as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, the main concept is pretty much just that you you more or less have like a gigantic mirror, and the mirror just focuses light onto it in such a way right. that it pretty much just turns the light into like a beam, and then uh-huh. the beam, the, the pressure from like the photons hitting it. Right. is what allows it to be like propelled uh-huh. so it's kind of kind of like a self self-propagating cycle right um, and if, if you can create one of these um it's like big enough and strong enough and also light enough because it has to be able to like move with like not that much pressure or force on it right then like theoretically you can make something that goes really damn fast right, right. um but uh one of the things that i i saw something um I saw like a story about was that people were proposing basically if a species could take their sun and pretty much put a Dyson sphere like uh, solar sail on it, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you could turn the whole solar system into like a rocket pretty much. Right, right. Wow, that's incredible. That's <laughs> yeah, uh, like you can pretty much move the star using like, <laughs> like by reflecting the photons that it. And right, it's onto like right, a gigantic right. mirror. Damn. So, um, and with that, you might be able to move probably like a couple percent the speed of light, maybe, um, right, which right, is right. way better than what we're doing now. Right, right. So, so you're you're a scientist, of course, 
but I wanted to ask whether or not you found a sense of spirituality in studying the universe, regardless of whether or not you actually believe in God or, or you, you're a materialist scientist. If, if you, if, if when you're looking through your microscope or your, your microscope, your telescope, uh, if, if, if you find any sense of connection with the cosmos. So, I mean, so I'm not like a religious person in uh -huh. any way. Um, and that's not really a, that's not really a matter of me being a scientist, really. I just like mm -hmm. wasn't raised to okay. be religious. Like, right. I didn't come from a religious background in any way. Uh -huh. But um, like there, there definitely is a sense of like spirituality with, uh, especially studying like astrophysics, but also just like all sciences, mm -hmm. because you you get to know the way that the universe works, and, like the way that like physics works, and just right. everything, how things function, mm -hmm. and. Most of the things are just laws that exist. Right. Like right. the things. So pretty much all of science is like something we discovered. Like mm -hmm. we we sort of discovered calculus and we discovered physics and we discovered how like bio, biological systems work and all this stuff. So right. It's, right. It's like all of these things were in play and existed regardless of whether or not humans came about to observe them and like quantify mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really wild when you think about it in that way. Like all of these constants in physics, like gravitational constant or the speed of light and all of this stuff, these are like limits or like like specific values that exist mm -hmm. throughout the universe as like a constant value. So the speed of light, as long as it's traveling through a vacuum, is always going to be the exact same, no right. matter where you are in the universe, mm -hmm. as far as we're aware. And like just having these exact numbers and these like limitations is in itself like a sort of spirituality i guess mm -hmm. just because we have all this faith in the idea that all of these things just happen to exist right like right. there just is a universe there just are like laws of thermodynamics that cause stars to exist mm -hmm. and like cause stars to explode and Right. gravity causes galaxies to like collapse onto themselves and form yeah. larger galaxies and stuff like that so uh -huh. it's it's crazy like when you actually think about it that all these things just happen to be what they are right um i, I wouldn't necessarily say that i believe that there's like some divine creator that like made everything what it is mm. but it just like it really makes you think about why is everything this way and right, like right. are are we meant to discover it all like yeah. like you were saying if we were the only intelligent civilization then i feel like it's like kind of a responsibility to try to discover it mm -hmm. but even if we weren't the only intelligent ones like even if in a whole universe there's like a thousand intelligent civilizations i feel like it's still kind of the responsibility of each one to try to like figure out everything as best as possible mm -hmm. and it's kind of just like a giant game of everyone trying to learn as much as possible. Right. Like they, there's no competition and they're just trying to figure things out. Yeah. And like, just, just that like pursuit of knowledge, I feel mm -hmm. like is in itself, like a, a type of spirituality, just figuring out as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And like, you can question it all you want and you can like, you know, f have competing theories and mm -hmm. like, bring in new information and change your theories along the way. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's really just about like knowledge and understanding at that point. Um, like you're not trying to explain something. You're not trying to be like, Oh, okay. We don't understand this. So like God, or like, you know, there's this random thing 
that's a miracle. Right, um, right. Well, that's just that's the God of the gaps argument, right? If yeah. if, if we can't understand it, it's got to be God. But then God is a uh, an ever decreasing uh, point in 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 our reality as we learn more and more about the universe. Exactly. So I I feel like it's really like just just saying that God did everything is honestly just the easy way out. Right. Um, like if if you really want to understand things and you really want to know like like what's up with the universe and why we are where we are and like who we are as a species you're not going to find it in just saying that god is the answer to everything you're going to find it by really digging into science and trying to understand things like as best as possible and Mm -hmm. as quantitatively and qualitatively Mm -hmm. as possible Mm -hmm. not just by defaulting to something all the time right right so what is the most fascinating thing you've ever learned about the universe Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> if, if you can put it into words. <laughs> well, I feel like there's just, there's so many different aspects of astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I do exoplanet research, so right. I'm, I'm trying to find planets out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, that field of study has, like you said, it's, it's only come about in the last few decades, really. Um, but just the fact that there are other planets out there, I feel like is fascinating enough to me. Uh-huh. Um, just like at a very base level, like the fact that there are planets around other stars is crazy. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's like, people have tried to quantify the likelihood of there being other Earth-like planets out there. And the crazy part is like, the numbers behind that are actually like pretty tangible. So uh, my, my advisor, um, like my PhD advisor actually, led a research project um, and it was part of his uh, PhD thesis in which he tried to quantify roughly how many how many Earth-like planets there were around Sun-like stars, uh-huh. um, which is really specific, but he was trying to use existing data to quantify that. And they actually found that it's about 6%, plus or minus 2% of all planets around Sun-like stars are Earth-like. So mm-hmm. they're rocky, they're at a reasonable temperature and they potentially have atmospheres Mm -hmm. and like six percent of all sunlight stars is actually a huge number yeah um and like as far as stars go about eight percent of all stars are uh Mm sun-like so that means that about one in every 200 planets is a potentially habitable earth-like planet around the sun-like star right and like one in 200 is an insanely high rate um, and I feel like that's one of the key things that actually drew me into um, studying planets and exoplanets mm-hmm. because so when I got to Caltech I didn't know what I wanted to do in astrophysics mm-hmm. and I just applied to a couple random uh, research positions for the summer and like different internships and I got one um, at a planetary science uh, research center from NASA mm-hmm. and um, the, the my current PhD advisor was actually one of my co-advisors in that project my freshman year of college and and he showed me this paper and i was reading through it and i was just fascinated by these numbers like one in 200 planets could be earth-like is mm-hmm. just insane and right, that, that's right. what kind of led me down the rabbit hole of like studying exoplanets and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. but uh exoplanets is just one of the like many areas of astrophysics like like i was talking about the the kardashev scale and like the idea of society expanding beyond their own solar system that's also like a crazy thing to Mm -hmm. think about Mm -hmm. um 
And I would say one of the other things that is like super interesting is just so something that I learned, uh, I think it was like my sophomore year of college, was that um, we actually, even if we improved our technology to be like infinitely precise, we would never be able to observe the beginning of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that concept is like, it kind of sends you, sends you into an existential crisis a little bit. <laughs> because like, you, you want to know how things start. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of say, like, oh, maybe we don't know how the universe started just because we're not smart enough or we don't have advanced enough technology or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but we actually, even if we had the most advanced technology possible and even if we were, like, just absolute geniuses, <laughs> it would be impossible to observe the beginning of the universe because from about, I think it's, like, 300,000 years after the Big Bang, up until the Big Bang, so like the first 300,000 years, light didn't travel in straight lines. Light just kind of bounced around chaotically. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to track back that like a single photon mm-hmm. to where it came from. Mm-hmm. So like we can observe light all the way back to about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, but before that, it's literally just a fuzz. Uh-huh. Like no matter how precise our technology could be, we would never be able to see the Big Bang like yeah. with our own eyes yeah. through observing. Yeah. E- even if we were just absolutely like the most intelligent we could be, we just it, it's not possible. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you, you can't like unless we just somehow understood like how to trace back like a photon that randomly bounced around for three hundred thousand years, which right, right. I think just the numbers behind that is like impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like that, that's one of the other things is just that, that like impossibility of understanding the beginning of the universe um, is it's just wild. But so, yeah, there's, there's so many different aspects of astrophysics that are crazy. Before we go, before we conclude, I wanted to ask you one final question. What about the universe or what about the ideas that you study and surround yourself with would you like to communicate to others who may not necessarily have the same scientific perspective that you have? Honestly, like this might this might not be like the direction you expected me to take this, but uh, I feel like the the best thing that I would like to communicate with people just about science in general is like that pretty much anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, I, I went to Caltech for undergrad and currently doing a PhD, but uh, literally anybody can do science. Um, like, it, it doesn't take a bachelor's, it doesn't take a PhD, it doesn't, hell, it doesn't even take you to be, like, good at math in order to, like, participate in science. Uh-huh. Um, science is all about, like, discovering things and, like, understanding things and, like, pursuing, like, knowledge. Uh-huh. Um so it, it doesn't actually take intense scientific knowledge or math skills. It just takes a curiosity mm-hmm. and like a desire to figure things out. So um, there, there's actually a lot of um, a lot of resources online that are um, called citizen science projects. Uh-huh. Uh, so I I'll I can send you some of the links to these things. Yes, but, please, um, please do. I'll yeah. So basically, different scientific communities that collect a ton of data. And this includes um, exoplanet studies. So, like, for exoplanets, we have telescopes that are just observing um, large patches of the sky for, like, months at a time, just collecting data for all of these stars. And, like, we have automated ways of sifting through the data, 
but like a computer is only going to be able to recognize things so well. So we actually publish a lot of the data on like open source websites where people can just go and scroll through it and mm -hmm. look at the data like themselves. And like citizen scientists are just some dude sitting on his couch at home scrolling through this <laughs> website on his laptop. Right. Um, people have found planets before. Uh -huh. And these like citizen scientists are just everyday people and like right. some of them have zero scientific background uh -huh. and they just do it for fun mm -hmm. and there's actual publications that are authored and like led by these people in mm -hmm. collaboration with real like you know, like phd level scientists uh -huh. to publish these things and it's becoming a bigger and bigger thing throughout most fields of astronomy because mm -hmm. as our technology gets better we collect more and more data and mm -hmm. like the more data we get the harder it is to analyze it all ourselves mm -hmm. so um there, there's a lot of citizen science projects going on that anybody can get involved with yeah um, yeah. yeah so e even if like you know nothing about astronomy nothing about physics nothing about math all it takes is you to like log on to one of these websites uh -huh. and they'll they'll explain to you like exactly what the purpose of the project is mm -hmm. and like the basics of what they're looking for right and right. you just like go through this little tutorial on how to do it and you start doing it yeah and yeah, yeah. if you flag something that's interesting and that thing later gets published you could literally be a part of the scientific process of publishing even if you don't want to be involved to that level there's there's always tons of resources for um like i i'm a coordinator for the daily planetarium mm -hmm. um and we're actually hosting virtual planetarium shows oh that's really we're cool doing a, like uh yeah um so usually our planetarium shows were limited by like the capacity of the physical planetarium itself on campus which mm -hmm. can only host like 40 people at most i think or like mm -hmm. 50 people but now that we're virtual it's actually kind of expanded um, what we've been able to do. So our first virtual show was about the Perseids meteor shower about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And at that one, I think our peak viewership, because um, we did like a live stream on YouTube, we had like three or 4,000 people show up. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it was crazy. And like so many of these people were just like, oh my God, like this is crazy to like <laughs> hear about this because they can look right. up in the sky and see the meteors like in the ass, like, like, you could see the meteor shower going on overhead. Yeah. And, like, we were telling them about where it originated and, like, what the best viewing spots are and stuff yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, there's, there's all sorts of ways for people to right, get more right. involved in science. Like, I, I know a lot of people think of it as, like, oh, you got to be a genius to do that. <laughs> but, but, like, you, you really don't. You just have to be curious. Yeah. Um, like, right. I, like... You know, me and, me and you went to high school together. Yeah. Um, like we, we probably had some classes together at some point. Like, I'm, I'm no different than you. Right, um, right. Like, we, we grew up in the same place, went to the same high school. Right. Um, right. I, I didn't own a computer until, like, a couple months before I went to college. Really? I didn't know how to, Yeah, exactly. Like, I literally did not own a computer until, like, five months before college. Wow. And I, I didn't own a self, like, a smartphone until, like, like my senior year of high school <laughs> and i i like never saw a single line of code uh -huh. until a couple months into college before and i was like i was floundering about like oh my god how do i program everyone's more advanced than me in this school because <laughs> yeah. i mean at caltech everyone is like a genius and yeah. i was honestly like bottom of the barrel in terms of like knowledge going into it yeah but yeah. uh <laughs> but like like i i figured it out and i picked it up and i just like allowed my 
interest and curiosity to drive me. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Like it's, it's something anybody can really do. Um, I guess so, in the in yeah. the in the end, like science is a, a human endeavor not necessarily made for specific individuals it's it's a collective effort in to to, to reach into the future and and actualize uh the 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 wildest dreams of science fiction i i've always exactly. been i've always been fascinated with science which is part of the reason why i wanted to have you on the show just because i the, these these concepts that you're discussing are, are are fascinating and part of the reason why i asked you about the um the uh asked you the question about whether or not you find some kind of spirituality in, in, in the universe is because when i when i look up and 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 we we I, I look i look at the stars at what i can see of the stars through the smog of course uh <laughs> um when, when i look up to the stars you you feel you you feel the vastness of space uh and you kind of remember i do anyways i kind of remember that we're all part of this 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 universe not just as participants but we're actually made of the universe itself and that makes me feel so much more connected to the world around me uh, that, that's like a great way of putting it like all of the all the nickel and iron and all of that in your blood that right that right. stuff originated from the cores of supermassive stars right, like billions right. of years ago right. we're all made of star stuff right. and uh we're just tiny specks in the universe that have existed for a blink of an eye in terms of like how long the universe has been around uh -huh. and yeah it's like we we don't have that long on this planet so why not try to learn as much as you can while you're right, here right. Uh, a carl sagan quote that i think i don't believe in god in the typical sense of the word as a man as a patriarchal figure as a corporeal being who affects everyday change in our lives but when i learn about physics about the laws that govern our reality, about black holes and quasars and moons and planets and faraway suns, it satisfies me in a place that would normally be satisfied by God or religion, an almost spiritual contentment with simply being alive. And sometimes I envy our ancestors and that they were able to look up into the sky and experience the majesty of space. Now we look up and see only the shallow blinking of stars through polluted darkness. As Mason said in our interview, at this point it's almost naive to believe that we are the only life in the universe. But let's assume for a second that we are at least the only life forms that have achieved a certain level of self-awareness and our ability to understand ourselves and the world around us. In my view, this places a certain responsibility to self-preservation at the species level, but also at an individual level as well. It is my belief that the planet grew us in order to reflect upon itself. So the onus of communicating that understanding falls upon each of us. But even stepping aside from a spiritual perspective, our planet may very well be the only planet capable of sustaining life, and each day we render upon it more and more damage and destruction. We have become a danger to ourselves and the creatures with which we share our space. And this is why it's so important to have at least some level of understanding of science and nature, because we are separated from nature only by the illusion of personality like a child who believes himself grown because he learns to tie his shoes. But time is running short. As Carl Sagan put it, we are like butterflies who flutter for a day and think it eternity. These important decisions need to be made within the next decade if we are to preserve life on our small lonesome planet. We are our own first and last line of defense. No one is coming to save us. Will we finally accept our destiny as the only stewards of this green and blue rock? Or will we continue to reject this gift of life in favor of short-term profit? Thank you for listening to Cosmic Conversations, and as always, 
stay weird. <laughs>